Welcome to season one of Deconstructing the Raise, a show powered by VentureJuice, a European fundraising and investment platform built for SaaS founders and funders. VentureJuice helps early stage companies increase their exposure to the right funding and helps connect them with their best fit investor. If you're looking to raise your first or your next round, you can create a founder profile in less than five minutes at VentureJuice.com forward slash founders. In this season, Alex Steumer, the CEO of Sastock, talks with eight founders to identify exactly what it takes to successfully raise seed and Series A rounds. All right, we are live and uh, welcome, hi uh, everyone, to uh, Deconstructing the Raise, a weekly show where we debunk early stage fundraising to help those raising seed uh, or Series A uh, get more success. I'm Alex Thumer, CEO of Sastock, which is an events and media company that helps SaaS companies get traction, grow, and scale. Each week, I'll be joined by founders that have recently raised uh, a seed or Series A round uh, and hit them with the questions to break down their success to help you, the listener, get an advantage as you go through the process. Um, today, I am joined by uh, Rudy Galai, uh, who is the CEO and co-founder of QuantCopy, a UK-based uh, startup that has raised, uh, I believe it's a, a seed round. Uh, so Rudy, uh, welcome to Deconstructing the Race. Hey Alex, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, good to good to have you. Thanks for thanks for joining and at uh, you, you know slightly short notice as well. Appreciate you uh, you stepping in. Um, so uh, good to speak to you, Rudy. Um, so Rudy, let's get into it. Um, starting from the top. Can you tell us how much you raised, from whom, uh, and what stage funding round uh, it was? Sure, Alex. So we've raised just under uh, half a million pounds. Uh, the lead investor is a very lovely, very helpful, entrepreneur-friendly angel group called IFG.VC. And we would characterize this as a, as a pre-seed round based on kind of the, <laughs> the labels and numbers of uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. And and why why this lead investor? You mentioned there, um, you, you know, I guess kind of uh, founder friendly, but uh, uh, why particularly this lead investor? For us, it's very relationship driven. Uh, they were introduced via a mutual friend who was actually already a, a like an angel investor uh, in a in a in a different part of the process, uh, and it was just somebody who we kind of built a very good relationship very quickly and we're very comfortable with uh, the, the proposition they were putting on the table. Uh, and that was what really won out for them throughout the process. Where, where did you meet them? Uh, so it was, as I said, it was an introduction from, uh, from one of our angel investors that were already in a firm. So kind of give, giving a little bit more context. Uh, we, like everybody else, we started with our own money and, and in that process there was some friends and family involvement um and one of our friends who was an angel uh at the start of the company uh knew the guys at ifg and they requested an intro and say like this is, looks really interesting we want to see whether they're fundraising and that happened to be just a few weeks before we kind of formally opened around um so it was actually a very good timing from them uh so we, we started talking and they were Kind of ticked all the boxes that we were looking for in an investor uh and that's how they 
Was this uh, pre-COVID in terms of timings? Uh, was it pre-COVID, during COVID? Uh, what sort of year, roughly? Uh, oh, it's mid-COVID. So it was actually December okay. two months ago, two, three months ago. And, and so then I, I'm assuming that you didn't meet in person. It was done over Zoom? Uh, or yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I met everybody over Zoom, uh, but it wasn't in person. And how long did the, the, the process of the, the fundraise from start to finish take? It was about two and a half months or two months, I think. Uh, so it wasn't super long. And did you, uh, I mean, were you happy with that? I mean, you mentioned it's not super long, um, but were you, were you uh, expecting perhaps initially that it, it might be quicker? Or were you happy with two and a half months? Um, is there and is there anything that you, you you think you could have done when you look back to to expedite it, or, or, or are you completely sort of happy with it? So, I think it's a it's a process that I could have managed better. Uh, I think everybody sees it as a process that has a start and an end. Um, and I think it's it was it could have been shorter, right? And then I can qualify that. So I think in any relationship there is uh, a warm up period, and you get to know people, and, and you start establishing a relationship. In the future, I like to do that outside of a fundraising window, so to say. Uh, and I'll define a fundraising window as something that, or sorry, a period where you accept uh term sheets uh so i think when i when i said two months uh we we didn't follow this kind of rule this is kind of like a learning from us and we kind of had some pre-fundraise that happened within that window and then we kind of rounded out the, the the investor base and uh and closed the round uh but i think you know to, to answer your question uh could have definitely kind of maintain a lot more relationships over time, which we're doing right now, uh, so that when you do fundraise, you can open the round for a shorter period of time, make the process a bit more managed, a bit more deliberate, uh, and get the fundraise done that way. How many uh, investors did you meet in total um, as you were fundraising? Uh, I mean, uh, some founders that, that I've spoken to, you, you know, go through a hundred no's to get to that kind of one yes. What what was the kind of... Uh, the I would think it's similar, uh, but if we count kind of serious conversations where both parties were considering it, uh, I would say the number is probably 30 to 40 um, before we get we got uh, the current cap table together. Uh, so obviously what people don't talk about enough, it's in a, in a fundraising round because it's a round, you, you usually need multiple yeses. Um, and so I would say the, the ratio is about like 30 no's more or less. And why do you think they they chose to invest in, uh, in? I think the, the the two strongest things that we had was number one, we had a very strong team. So I have about ten years experience in this market, and my co-founder has a PhD in the technical issue that we're tackling. Uh, and then secondly, we not only had paying customers, but we had amazing customer feedback on how the tool was impacting their productivity 
So I think those two things combined uh, versus the, the stage that we're raising at uh, made a value, very attractive proposition to the investor. And, and I mean, given it, it, it often at pre-seed, um, you, you know, a, a lot of companies actually don't really have many metrics to to share. You mentioned that you had some uh, revenue and customers, which is which is great. Were there any other kind of metrics um, that you shared with the investors that helped clinch the deal, uh, or, or was it largely, uh, uh, as you sort of uh, said, you know, uh, around the team and the uh, I guess the problem that you're solving? Yeah. So. As you probably know, metrics at this stage, it's not reliable, let's put it that way. Um, but I do know that the, the feedback was every week or every meeting that happened with each investor, uh, we come back with more progress, right? So, you know, if we have a conversation that lasts four meetings over five weeks, then every meeting would have new customers, new users, new features, new things are shipped new quote from new customers uh, and, and new sort of progress. Uh, that was the, the most standout feedback we're, we've gotten from investors who did, did participate, um, where I think that gave them a lot of confidence in where this is going. And look, I, I hear a lot about the importance of a, a founder to be a storyteller, right? And when you're meeting with investors, you know, to tell them a story, you know, get them kind of hooked in. Um, what was the what was the story that you told uh, to, to, to get the investors? Uh... So our story was very much centered around how there is a very technical problem on information overload in our customer base. And not only have we solved this, uh, we have solved it because I've seen it many times in my career. And also we have fantastic uh, customer feedback on on the, our approach and, and how unique we are in the market. So I would think that this is because of kind of, a, as you pointed out, metrics and customers and revenue. Um, the story was, was very much, we're tackling a big market uh, and we have made very solid progress at the start uh, rather than pure, I think what, even myself th thought of a storytelling going to fundraise where it's it, you kind of get stories of these founders who tell an amazing kind of vision and, and there there isn't much uh, other metrics or much substance to the to the whole 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 narrative. Uh, I think often fundraising gets portrayed in that light, but I, I didn't think you know when when the rubber meets the road, I didn't think that was reality. I think when we told the story, it was very much there's a there's a huge amount of data out there in the world that people need to need to harness to do the job nowadays. This data is very fragmented. The only way to do to tackle this problem is either to hire very expensive data engineers or use something like Quantcopy. Uh, that was one part of the story that was very attractive, but the other part was purely based on how differentiated we were in the marketplace and how we corroborated that with evidence from customers. And were there any unforeseen hurdles that you, you had to un, uh, overcome? And they usually are, but in, in this case, was, was there anything? So I would say the learnings are, are a few points, right? So number one is simplification. Number two is understanding 
the investors and their process. Uh, and number three is time management, right? So uh, I would say that I didn't, in terms of simplification, I think I needed to simplify the story a lot more than I initially was expecting. So that was one. Uh, number two was I learned to understand investors' decision-making process a lot deeper than, again, when I first entered the process. And lastly, managing the fundraising process in addition to growth, in addition to customer success, in addition to product management, that's, again, something that I knew was hard, but uh, was harder than I thought. And then, uh, I mean, from the, the legal side, um, what support did you did you get and what was the structure uh, of the? Yeah, so we did it with this fantastic product called Seat Legos, uh, and it was super simple. Uh, we actually ran into quite a few legal, I would say, situations. Not, not a bad thing. It's just like requirements become more complex as you go into a bigger round with more established investors. However, not only did Seat Legos resolve this with no problem and with a lot of great customer support, uh, we actually independently checked uh, our decision or our, our choice of provider with uh, legal experts, lawyers, and everybody told us to go back to Seat Legal. So that was like very good. Uh, yep, know know them well, and um, uh, it's, it's good that uh, that was uh, helpful uh, for you during this. And uh, when you were raising, uh, was there were, were you kind of, um, I guess, kind of the 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 the, the co-founder that was uh, doing all the investor meetings? Was it you, you know you and your co-founder? Um, and what other uh, or were there any other members of the team? Um, or external people that were involved in the fundraise? So we're very lucky that a few customers uh, were also founders themselves and are a few rounds ahead of us, uh, and that helped. Uh, we had a very useful advisor that we had access to that actually is a, is a venture capitalist, so he gave us a lot of actionable advice and, and a lot of actionable introductions. Uh, but on my side, because we were super small when we raised, it was just me who took all the meetings. Um, I'm assuming, um, perhaps, well, I, I don't know, you tell me, like, that, given the pre-seed stage and not huge amounts of metrics, that uh, maybe there wasn't a need for a data room uh, at that stage? Is that fair to say? Uh, there wasn't a need, but uh, <laughs> based on my investment banking background, we had one anyway. Um, I just feel like that is a lot more tractable than emailing things back and forth. And uh, many, I think most investors I interacted with, they all needed to see multiple different documents, uh, whether those, those are contracts or uh, those are models or, or sort of evidence that you're, you're a legit company. Uh, and I often feel that kind of coordinating these things on WhatsApp or email or any sort of messaging tool is suboptimal, right? Like attachments gets lost. Like there's an entire industry around solving this need. And a data room is a super simple solution to just say, look, everything is on the data room. The latest version is always there. There's no question on whether an attachment 
is the latest version or not, and there's no back and forth around like, oh, let's check whether V15 is actually V15 or V16. Uh, so I think data rooms doesn't need to be complex. It doesn't need to belong in in an M and A shop. It doesn't need to be, you know, super super complex with a particular pr data room provider. It could just be a Google Drive folder where you put all your metrics, all of your models, all of your documents on there, and it just keeps everybody aligned in the same way. And is this something that you uh, continue to kind of keep? up to date, even perhaps in non-active fundraising uh, times? Yes, absolutely. So uh, it obviously our, our existing investors get investor updates, very simple. Um, we do keep the data in the data room fresh because it's, it's actually really hard to do it in one go when you, when you, when you do need to raise and, and, you know, fires are burning. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, I, I, I definitely think, there is a lot more prep in general for the fundraising process than one might realize. And it there's there's all sorts of advantages in, in doing it continuously. It gives yourself a clear picture on what's going on in business. It makes sure that your when it comes to fundraising, you you're not kind of last minute picking pieces up and 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 realizing too late that you're missing certain pieces of data. Uh, so that's the approach we've been taking. And on the pitch deck side, uh, do you create this internally? Any external uh, support on it? Um, you know, was there, uh, I guess, kind of uh, freelance graphic designers? Like, how much kind of time, effort, resource, like money, did you put? You know, emphasis on this kind of pitch deck, pitch deck for the pre-season. A lot. Um, I would say we have an unfair advantage because. I used to do graphic design for a living um, in, and that's how I kind of supported myself through college. Uh, so that was fairly straightforward. It wasn't, I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical in terms of getting external freelancers or, or, or vendors to, to work on your pitch deck. Uh, I think the biggest cost or, or time spent is really the story, right? As you, as, as you alluded to earlier, uh, storytelling is, is important and like kind of a lot of times we, we we don't actually work in the deck itself but we work on sort of a skeleton or like a storyboard uh in our in our notion wiki uh and that's where the main the, the bulk of the time is spent like designing it making it pretty is actually was actually really simple and what, what did you include within it you know what were the kind of the key slides uh, and and how long was the deck was it 10 slides or was it It's I think twenty. Um, I don't. I didn't think it was. So like, there is no secret to a good deck, right? Uh, it contains the the normal market problem solution vision, traction, customer quotes, product screenshots, team profiles, etc. Uh, I think the most important element that is very very hard to 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 get right is how the deck reads as a whole right like you you often hear people say that the first read of a deck is always people flick it through on the phone um but i think this metaphor actually extends into into uh whether people do the second or third read right because 
as I said earlier, it's super important to understand the environment and the decision process of the investor while they're making a decision with your startup. So <clears throat> every time your deck lands in front of an investor, it's probably one of 20 decks that day. Their phones are going off, emails is blinking. They have 15 to-dos on their mind. Your pitch deck is only 60 to 70% of their focus, uh, at least in the in the first few few reads. So you, you really need to cater for that, right? Like you you need to design a deck in a way that it could be used as a tool uh, in, in a sense where you can either read it, skim it, or like really deep dive into it. And crucially, it needs to be shareable. So um, you, you need it to be like any kind of good marketing material. You need, you need to be shareable. It needs to go viral within uh, the investor's firm. And like if you don't nail the overall order and if the story isn't clear, uh, even if you impress the first person, you you know you need to help them impress the rest of the firm. You need to help them impress their network, impress their their customers. Uh, sorry, customer references that they approach, uh, and that's why I think while everybody has the standard elements in their pitch deck, the most important thing of the deck is that when you read through it, it leaves you with a feeling that this is something very exciting. And looking back at sort of like when you started the the, the reach out, um, you know, you're ready to to raise, uh, and you know the planning kind of stage of uh, of the VCs uh, that you wanted to meet. How did how did you go about it? Obviously, you said that uh, I think the, the the lead investor came about from you know a, an intro, uh, and you also mentioned that you you know there's probably uh, 20, 30 uh, or, or more kind of VCs that you actually spoke to. How did you go about that kind of planning stage um, uh, back then? Uh, so like everybody, we have like an investor CRM. Uh, we then asked uh, people we have good relationships with to do introductions. So we only went through intros. Like there was no uh, outbound or there were no inbounds. Like it was only us deliberately asking for intros. Uh, I think, as I, as I said earlier, in, in the next round, what we want to do is to do the reach out now, uh, build a relationship over six, four months, whatever. Uh, and leading into the next round, it's it's no longer like a fan out initial stage or a reach out initial stage. It's just you, you have warm relationships. People have seen your progress over many months and you're simply having a conversation of we're, we're open for fundraising now. Um, so I think you know, the, my learning, it's, it's best to avoid that kind of reach out at the start of the fundraise. Like it's much better to know them by the time, know them well by the time you head into the fundraise. Um, so the, I guess it kind of leads and it could answer the, uh, uh, the, the, the next question, but obviously if you go back to the beginning from what you know now, what would you do differently, uh, you know, potentially start that planning earlier being one, one thing, um, Anything else that you would do differently from what you know now? I think it's it's again right the the simplicity of the story. It needs to be uh, very simple, uh, and the 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 observation I have it's yes, investors are extremely intelligent people, but they operate in so many different contexts, right? Like 
you as a founder, uh, you live and breathe the, the problem, you live and breathe the, the vision, everything is super clear to you and you have a million times more details than what an investor could have. So we should help the investors and, and consider our audience and say like, how, how simple can we make this? How easy it is to actually get what we're doing? How, how relatable it is, is what you're doing? Um, and it's very hard, right? Like, especially in, in, in our domains, Alex, you know, in B2B SaaS, like it's not always straightforward what the problem is, uh, but it's our job to make it simpler. Uh, and then the other thing, it's obviously, as I said again earlier, uh, to understand the investor decision process and their lives in a deeper way, um, to understand kind of how they receive your information, how they look at your deck, how they kind of evaluate your startup. Um, a very concrete example is uh, you can do a lot of things to help the investors do their due diligence and and help them pitch your startup back to their firm, pitch your startup back to the network, pitch your startup back to the reference checks they're doing. And if you think about that level of, of messaging, then it just makes everybody's job a lot easier and it increases your probability of getting something through. Yeah, 100%. And then when you... Um... You successfully raised, you received the money, it was wired over. Uh, was there uh, a small or a big celebration? Uh, no, so <laughs> we, we do need to do this, but um, I think the, the, the reality was we, we closed this and then it was Christmas and I think everybody just took time uh, personally to, to recover from what is a very unique, very stressful year. Um, and then after that, like, I think we, I think as, as founders, Jack and myself, we're both forward looking people, right? Like um, we are most excited about the potential and the new problems that come up and new challenges. And so I think we just got wrapped up in, in planning for 2021 and then we launched a new platform and then active users went up exponentially and handling like an gigantic increase in usage uh, that just dominated our attention. So no, like we, we, we should, but we, we haven't. Um, and and what, what does the money uh, go on, you know, at that kind of pre-seed stage? You know, what, what, what do you need to spend it on? So we're basically solidifying what we have built in the last Eight months, right? So we, we started a company February 2020. We we closed the pre-seed December 2020, uh, and throughout like between that, it was extremely to to borrow a phrase from from Paul Graham, like everything was things that are done to not scale, right? So we we optimize for for solving the problem. We optimize for traction. We optimize for revenue, and it the the company was extremely unoptimized. Uh, in, in other parts, so processes or, or the product or support or DevOps, whatever. Um, so really that the money is to use, it is used to take advantage of uh, the, the referrals we're seeing, the viral growth that we're seeing um, to ensure that we can sustainably scale to the next 10X uh, by basically kind of putting it in a little bit more robustness in the, in the company so that as we you know, not serve 10 customers, but serve 100, 200, 300 customers, uh, we can actually do what we're doing kind of at a small scale, at a large, larger scale.
And it wasn't uh, it wasn't so long ago, as you said, that you you um, successfully completed the the pre seed round. Have you already started uh, looking? Uh, I guess the raise for uh, for the seed. Yeah. So as I said, I think the I, I've did this this kind of pre seed have changed my view on on how fundraising is done. Right. So um, we're sort of working on it in a sense where we have been reaching out to all the investors that we haven't spoken to yet, uh, investors who are more in the next round or the round after that, um, and really kind of building a capability in our, in our, in our company to manage kind of capital. Right. Um, and so I think it has started, but as, as I talked about many times, it, it's the, it's the, the kind of long preparation, or passive preparation process that that comes before an intense fundraise that we're involved in uh but we're not like actively trying to close anything because <laughs> we've 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 literally just started on a, on the next stage well rudy uh it's been uh fascinating speaking with you and i really appreciate you uh, taking the time to kind of answer these questions on deconstructing the race where, where can people find you and quant copy online so it's uh, quantscopy.com. Uh, there's actually a little chat box there connects directly to my phone. So you can both find my, my company, my products, and myself on the same page. Awesome. Good stuff. Rudy Luai, uh, CEO, co-founder of Quantcopy. Uh, thank you so much for being a, a great guest on Deconstructing the Rays. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday uh, with uh, another episode. If you like this episode, uh, please subscribe and share it online. It'll help us sort of grow the audience. And, and thanks so much again, Rudy. Thank you.